This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technologies. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. We've talked a lot about this show about money, about tech, about politics. Today we're going to focus a bit on the intersections among three different kinds of digital currencies, central bank digital currencies, stable coins, and crypto. These things have been a bit elided in the popular imagination in recent months, in my opinion. Michael, what do you think? Yes, I think there is a great deal of confusion around <laughs> what these things are. I think that the word crypto itself is almost like evoking an image of a culture, right? A, a sense yeah. of it belonging to this this broad idea that some people see very negatively. And yet, you know, and that to me confuses the conversation around the actual technology. And those technologies, there's a, a variety of technologies, a variety of different frameworks. And I think it's been very difficult to cut through the noise of crypto as a kind of culture or an idea, almost like a typecast person, and to sort of get that aside and that focusing on actual technology and what it does and how we define it, what taxonomy we use, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I think these things have been differentiated in part by industry actors, I think if we're fair. But you're right. They've almost been anthropomorphized with personalities, right? Like crypto is the edgy, you know, dark lord, right? And then central bank digital currencies are kind of the boring, stable, upright, standing citizen. And of course, uh, the concerns around things like privacy or surveillance or all those kinds of things, actually, I would argue, flip in some ways in the other direction. And so I think as we've moved towards more of a generic terminology, digital currencies, digital assets or whatnot, in an attempt, I think, to dodge some of the personality that's been given to these various categories, I'm not sure we've done anyone any favors because these things are quite different. They have different purposes, use cases, and actually, in some cases, fundamental underlying architecture. I'm excited to chat about these things today with our guest, Ricardo Todera-Riki, who is the head of policy and government relations at the Payment Association, and he is based in the UK. Uh, but before that, I should, I'll should i be remiss if I don't note that you can listen to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network or anywhere you find podcasts. Please do follow us. You can follow us on Twitter as well. Uh, with that, Ricardo, let's bring you in because you've thought for a long time about these topics. Uh, you were a consultant to the Italian Central Bank in the UK, the representative there. Uh, and you've been thinking a lot about these different kinds of digital currencies or digital assets and what they can actually do. So, so I'd love to get a, a sense from you, just a snapshot of this moment in time and how you're perceiving not only the realities around CBDCs, stablecoins and crypto, but how they're perceived within the UK landscape. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. Yes, I think that there is also a personal uh, connotation that has to be raised in here because when I was, you know, doing my previous job, as you said, I was a consultant to the Italian Central Bank in the UK. And I was looking at what the Bank of England was doing in this space. And I was impressed at how, you know, just in early 2020, mm -hmm. uh, the Bank of England was issuing a consultation on a possible CBDC. 
which was a topic that, I mean, really very few people knew. And it's actually well before it, in fact, they were the, they were the by far, the Bank of England was by far the first. And yeah. Yeah. And so I said, well, you know, what is this? (laughs) So it it was curiosity out of everything. And then lockdown happened and I was home and, you know, we were working from home and there was much more time, less distractions, no commuting. And I started to dig into this with much, much more interest than any time before. So I studied all the entire crypto space, the stable coins that were coming up at that time and the CBDCs. And then I decided to move job and I decided to go for the payments association, which was, you know, being at the forefront of innovation in, in the UK and has contributed so much to bring these topics forward with policymaker and lawmakers in, in the United Kingdom. So yeah, it was, you know, you observe what happens, you, you realize that the world is changing and you see, well, where do I want to be in this space? Because I think that many people are skeptical of innovation because they do not really fully understand. And I must say that I was one of those myself. Like It took me time to understand why we need this and why are we going towards this. And there are various different elements from, you know, now we can see the geopolitical one is probably the most visible because it's easy to understand. Everyone likes to be a geopolitical person. We all know that America <laughs> China is doing that. <laughs> That's like, but, you know, a part of this, jokes on the side, innovation is unstoppable. It's happening. And it happens because don't forget that we still have problems in payments, particularly with cross-border transactions. I mean, the payments industry is a fantastic industry. There are countries like the UK where domestic payments are great. But, and here I'm sorry to criticize the US, the US is not perfect, for example, for you know, domestic payment, still rely oh, on... <laughs> greatest country on earth, what are you saying? Right, get him off the program <laughs> right now. But, you know, Cut we, that we... audio feed. <laughs> <laughs> so it's still lots of checks and things. And whilst, you know, with, with innovation, we can speed up things, we can reduce costs, and we can reach out to much more people. And in the end, you know, there is the entire numbers of the unbanked and the underbanked in the, in the world that can benefit massively from the usage of new technology that will basically allow them to transact wherever they are without the real need for a bank account. So these are important things. And we go towards a society that wants to be faster, cheaper, and more inclusive. So I think that this is a technology that will deliver all of this. I always love hearing these stories. Was there, do you remember a moment when you changed your mind or became convinced, right? Somebody who came in open-minded but skeptical about this entire proposition you mentioned a lot of different options, geopolitics, financial inclusion. Was there something specific where you were like, oh, this is an undeniable innovation that's a benefit? Do you remember that moment? Yes, um, it came progressively because it's one of those things that, you know, at first you sort of reject because it's complicated. The technical part is incredibly complicated. It takes, you know, time to say, oh my God, I want to understand what this is. Because you say, why should I? You know, I can move money pretty quickly, at least in the UK. Why should it bother about thinking of using a stable coin or a central bank digital currency or, you know, doing my investments in crypto assets? It's not immediate. But then the more you enter and you study and you understand, the more it becomes sort of, I wouldn't say natural, but you understand why, why we're going towards that. If you want me to name a specific moment, well, I think that the pandemic has changed the way we live, right? Like, we were all home and without electronic money, which is not digital money, but without electronic money or digital payments online, online payments, let's not call it digital payments, let's call it online payments, we would have not been surviving. 
this is a catalyst moment that changes everyone's everyone's life. And now, you know, we are we're sort of used to think that you can just pay safe online and then there is massive problems with fraud and you know we're fighting against all of this very hard. But these are habits that change and change forever. Would you ever think of, you know, going back to, I don't know, the office five days a week? I mean, it's something that no one nope. no one will ever think of doing. So in the same way that, you know, the technology allows you to live better in many other things. And we're just here now, right? You are in New York, I'm in London, and, and things happen like we were face to face. So technology helps us living better. So that's, I think, that, you know, in, in the pandemic, this kind of technology emerged much more than before because there was more than one reason to sort of explore this. This is my opinion. It's really interesting. And I want to go back to something I just kind of talked about in, in the opener, which is the distinction among these three different kinds of digital currencies, right? So a central bank digital currency, a stable coin, and crypto. And as time has gone on, we've seen crypto, and obviously being very, you know, a bit cheeky here, but crypto becoming kind of like the villain of the case in some uh, to some people and, and CBDC is being, you know, the, the answer, right? And I actually am curious because I actually got into this space because of concerns about data privacy, traceability of data, things like that, which in many ways flip and work the opposite way. CBDCs are, you know, tightly controlled, generally speaking, and there's a lot of ability to kind of trace. How do you think about those kinds of concepts in, in the advent of CBDC specifically? Are those concerns you're hearing raised in the UK to the same degree they're raised in the US? Uh, are you hearing concerns about digital yuan and, and potential surveillance around that? Like, I'm just really curious on the issue of privacy, how you're thinking of digital currency and how that's being talked about within the United Kingdom. So, yeah, you you, you asked me a question that has <laughs> so many different answers. Yep. And so I, I want to give you, like, um, I will focus first on the division and the distinctions between crypto stable constituencies, and then we'll touch on privacy. So I want to use an image, right? Let's think of a pyramid. So at the base of the pyramid, there are CBDCs in the same way that there is cash right now. In the middle, there are stable coins in the same way that there is e-money at the moment. And on top, there is crypto, which is, you know, a completely different market. I would, I would look at it more as an investment, as a less than a form of, of money. So that's why there is this huge, there has been this huge debate, which I think now has been accepted more or less. That's right. Crypto is crypto assets, uh, whilst, you know, the rest is digital money. So stable coins and CBDCs. But we also have to understand that all of this comes from the crypto, the crypto space. The crypto yeah. has been, I, I would dare saying, a revolution in this space because it has introduced the concepts that, or at least that was the idea of Bitcoin to be used as a currency, right? So whilst I would normally would look at it more as a form of digital gold, but this is my personal opinion, there is no shared um, view on this. Mm -hmm. But the fact that, you know, you could use a global currency that was different from, that came from on a distributed ledger technology, came in a, you know, permissionless, that was the first time that a currency like that resolved the proof of double spending. Bitcoin was not the first attempt to resolve issues in the money space. It has been the first one which has worked, which is very different. That's many people don't think about it. But Bitcoin, of course, for the volatility and also for how its blockchain works, you know, there are, there are experiments on it now to make it faster. There's a lighting network, but I'm not going to touch it. I just want to say that, you know, the innovation, the evolution came from what Bitcoin caused. 
And the main idea is the fact that you don't need a central bank. So, and then we had the stable coins, which primarily use case walls, crypto trading, basically, you know, trap, make the most of the volatility, which is what concerns most retailers because they're not used to, to the market. But like stable coins came in to trap the gains. But again, this was something that was not needing a central bank. It was privately issued by private citizens. So the central banks, which were skeptical about all of this, and they probably thought, well, this is going to collapse because who's behind it? No one. In the end, they had to look at it, particularly with the advent of stablecoins. And then they didn't have the opportunity of staying out of this race. They had to jump in, which is why they started to look at around how to solve this problem. And I think that now there is a sort of acceptance of the idea of the coexistence of all of the three. Because in the new world, in the new digital world, they will have different elements. In the same way that today we've got cash, today we've got e-money, they coexist. No one knows about it, but they coexist. I mean, people who are technical about payments know the difference, but technically speaking, you know, we have cash, which will be the central bank digital currencies. Then we have commercial banking money, which will be possibly stable coins in the mix with e-money. And then we will have the crypto that will, will, will follow its own. Also, when we talk about crypto, you know, we have to differentiate between what is Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the major ones, and what does really solve problems and blockchain and how different blockchains can communicate from all the rest of the 6,000 and more uh, that I, I think that, you know, some of them are, will of course, disappear. <laughs> but this is the game. Are you looking to fast track your enterprise growth? With tools and solutions from EY, you could run your essential business applications, including private transactions and zero knowledge applications on public Ethereum. From supply chain to procurement to sustainability, EY blockchain's APIs and zero knowledge tools make public Ethereum accessible to all enterprise users. Find out why some of the world's leading companies are building on Ethereum with EY. Visit us at blockchain.ey.com. And the game is the fact that, you know, various jurisdictions have started to respond to what was a private citizen's need of creating the stablecoins. Stablecoins are the new e-money. We like to call them at the Payments Association S-money because they're just the natural evolution of what e-money is. It's just a better way of using it. And they can resolve lots of, lots of use cases like, you know, programmability. So it's, it's a next gen of this kind of money. And then we have CBDCs, which, as I said, central banks cannot not have because they cannot really relegate the issuing of money just to privacy. But this is not the first time that happens. In the UK, you know, we've had similar things in the past with the Scottish pound and the Irish one, which are issued by the local banks, but they're guaranteed by the Bank of England. So there are forms of this examples already. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I think views on this just differ so widely depending on how people understand the technology to your point you know it's yeah. it's complicated and hard to learn but i've had discussions with very senior monetary policy authorities uh, who say things like oh you know money is already digital so we're done we're done we already have digital money we already have you know i argue that's more like digitized money right uh, but it's not programmable. And I think the innovation here really is the programmability of money, which to your point, you know, for real things like settlements and things like that, the more you can code into the architecture, the faster, the more efficient you know, things get. And so I, I, my belief remains that once 
you know, the, the average consumer tastes programmable money and what it can do, there's going to be such an appetite and demand signal for it because it's going to make so many things a lot cheaper and faster, which is what I think many of us already understand to be the case. It's one of the biggest and it's, it's one of the biggest benefits of uh, programmable money that, that started with Bitcoin. So I, I just think that we are in the middle of I, I, I don't think your word revolution is in any way inaccurate. I actually do think it's a revolution. It sounds very melodramatic, but I think that's actually correct. And I actually see the shift to digital currency to programmable currency because these terms, we really don't help ourselves with these terms, right? When you say digital money, the argument that, that what you get back is, well, money is digital. Well, yes, of course, it's digital. It's digitized, right? Those are different things. But I do see this as, as significant as the change to very fungible paper money versus very heavy metal you had to kind of carry around or, or you know, or, or going all the way back to yap, right? So it's just going to remain to be seen how much the geopolitics, to your point, because everyone does fancy themselves to be a geopolitical person, right? how much that is going to influence the trajectory of a technology. And that's something else that I think we haven't really seen before in the same way. Money programmability, I think that we have to look at it in the same way that in the past we were probably thinking of the iPhone before it existed. <laughs> so mm. when we were firstly given iPhone 1, who could, would have ever imagined that our life would have been depending on all of these apps that are now on it, right? So that's the that's image that I have of programmable money. We are preparing for something that will change our life we still don't know how exactly yeah. but so, the reason why we have to do that is because like would you think now of living without an iphone not really it's impossible yeah, so well, i think we can acknowledge that that's good and bad and this is also going yes, to be good and absolutely. bad right but that's it is inevitable be... inevitable is the right word let's so like try to address something because i think that the word programmable money i'm a believer that it can actually make for a fundamentally more effective, efficient, and um, really hopefully more inclusive society if, you, if it's worked out well. However, the the term in certain places, and I think the United States seems to skew more heavily toward this concern than other places, is that it speaks to surveillance. Like it, the idea that every single monetary transaction is a piece of software is seen through a lens, rightly or wrongly, as if this is a mechanism for complete and utter control. And so I find it interesting that I think that, you know, some of the progress in this area had started with the UK because it was goes way back. Like Rob Ali joined me at MIT after yeah. the Bank of England, like 2016, right? And it was very much at that point, oh, we could do really cool things with this. And you mentioned things like government payments traceability. That was all about, hey, welfare check payments that could be like deliberately held back if certain things weren't being spent and so forth. And so there was a whole different mindset in the European way of thinking about this. And I think what you're finding certainly now in this very kind of unique moment in US history where a fear of government has risen to a, a big level. So I actually see programmable money as potentially a great thing, but the narrative around it, certainly in this in this part of the world, is going to get increasingly complicated, partly because of what she was saying at the beginning about the conflation of all these terms and so forth. So it seems to me that what really needs to happen is, is a conversation about privacy and how, if we are going down a CBDC or pyramid structure of the, you know, crypto, stable coin, CBDC model, right? That triple model, how is privacy baked into all of that? I absolutely agree and, and share your concerns because, you know, we can't jump into the future just saying, oh, well, it's exciting. So we do that. You have to think carefully of, you know, where we stand, what we want, what we want to achieve. I think that, you know, there it's, it, it goes back to the design model, right? So particularly for CBDCs, which is what scares people the most, I believe. I give you an example, like, you know, I have a question first. 
do you use your credit card of course and i'm well aware you, of how you, surveilled you, i am are you every worried exactly so are you right. worried that you know visa and mastercard are going to know i or whoever else are going to know where you spend your money no you don't even think about it so the fact that it's the government mm. i understand that's that's concerning because you say well you know i mean the idea that someone can push a button and freeze your assets it's you never know who is going to be in power right so you don't want this to happen so it goes back to the design model it goes back to and i, I really like to to use president biden's words once again it goes back to find a model that finds and respects our democratic values as it's written in the executive order on the use of digital assets. It goes back to that. And that's why you need to have a model in place because otherwise we will use other models that are available and are not respecting our democratic values. Problem is, again, this is all about how is this sold to the public, not necessarily about the facts, but this, this, the way that I think that a lot of skeptics in the United States now think is that you can put whatever checks and balances in place, but absolute power is something that is always there. And if you give that absolute power, the right tools, they they will, whether it's this this government, the next government, or branches of government that have, you know, a lot more uh, leeway to to do things on outside of scrutiny, will take advantage of these tools in, you know, really invasive and powerful ways. And, you know, that, that that's that's not a conspiracy theory, right? They're, they're, we do know that the CIA and the FBI and others have these ex- extraordinary subpoena and, and surveillance powers that um, you know, is is sort of fundamentally different from anything that MasterCard or Visa or Facebook or anyone has, right? That said, I'm also like, I think surveillance generally, I think power of these big centralized entities to sort of take all of our data and manipulate it is a massive problem that that is probably more extreme actually on the private sector side because of what we've just come through in terms of the Web2 era. So Whatever those design principles are, they have to have some sort of watertight element to them, right? There has to be some way in which this is built in such a way that a Hitler <laughs> or somebody who might want to become a Hitler doesn't take charge of at some point. Because I think that you've got, yeah. you know, the conflation of the tool, technology, and then the authoritarian instincts that people throughout history have always had. And, you know, you have Italian roots, right? So, you you know, you know. You know some of this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I think that, you know, data collection, of course, is an important uh, element here. So I was listening to a panel and there were uh, some officials from the Bank of England saying, you know, we're, we're looking at a model which doesn't collect private citizens' data. The problem is how to convince that we're not really doing that. So because there is this element of mistrust, put it in the way you want or, you know, natural instinct that, you know, someone is going to do it anyway and you never really know. And also because we're also ignorant in technical matters, like, to be fair, would they be able to know from my technical competencies whether someone is collecting my data or not? I don't know. I accept all the cookies on my phone and God knows. (laughs) We all do this. So, but in my opinion, is the element of the government that makes it unacceptable, right? And that's why also I think that in a future system, that's why I was saying that, you know, we have this pyramid with various different uh, coexisting new forms of digital money, because if you believe that the government is going to control you, you will never use a CBDC and no one can force you to use it. Like maybe the government can say, well, if you want my loan, then you're going to use a CBDC, in which case you will have a wallet for that and the money will perform exclusively if you are, you know, effectively 
uh, in need to get that money. But on another side, you may want to use your stable coins for your private life in the same way that now you use e-money or you know your credit card and everything else. So I think that a, a system which will be fully interoperable, that's the way forward. Because yeah, I don't think that you can win the argument in full by those who will always say, but they're going to control us. Well, hang on now though, right? So in a second, I think when I think about what happened in India, the idea that there's choice, even in a democracy is is not really true, right? I mean, in the space of a very short period of time, you not only had to get an Aadhaar digital ID, but you also had to begin using UPI, the Unified Payments Interface in India, for everything from gas to groceries. And there really isn't any choice. And that just was kind of rolled out. And that's a democracy. I, I do think the idea that we could cling to consumer choice and and have these different options, and you would inevitably not have to use a CBDC isn't necessarily true. I think there are many kinds of moves that could be made that wouldn't even be authoritarian in nature. They would be about convenience. They'd be about ease of use, you know, that kind of thing. Because today, I mean, you don't have to be on the grid. You could choose to be off oh, the grid. Agree, it's just a gigantic pain in the neck to do so, right? And yeah, you have to be I a think, certain kind of person. I agree with you, but I think that now, now I'm going to say something that probably I shouldn't say. You will decide later. But, <laughs> you know, if they're going to pay your bills, and you don't care that you pay with CBDCs, right? Because, but maybe if you're buying, I don't know, a sex toy, then you don't want the government to know. So, because you feel embarrassed, or like you know, you have multiple multiple reasons. So that's maybe you're going to use a stablecoin, and you feel better, and you say, well, you know, this is, I don't know, like I'm just saying. But I now here, if you want to go and buy something, you just buy with your debit card, and the transaction is there, and someone sees that. It's not the government; it's a private entity. And you don't even think about it. So I think that the discrimination is on the government side. That's why I think that, you know, there will be lots of competition in, in this new space of money between stablecoins and CBDCs. First of all, I think that people do fear or retain, you know, suspicion around the government more than private enterprise. And in part, that's because the private enterprises can't jail you. Right? The government can. The government can throw you in jail if they want to. And the police power is reserved, at least so far, to the government. And so I do think those distinctions are quite important and, and quite different, you know. And look, I take your point that most people just don't think about this at all. They just go about their day and they tap their phone to the kiosk and they buy their coffee and they go on, move on with their lives. And I've made the argument many times, you know, around TikTok, right? The idea that people aren't will not use it because they're worried about Chinese surveillance is ludicrous. I mean, people don't care. They're well aware of the consequences and they use it anyway. So I take your point that convenience is going to win out most of the time with consumers because consumers, that's that's what we've, at least in America, have been sort of honed and trained to prioritize is efficiency, convenience, speed, these kinds of things. And you're willing to accept all the cookies for the most part. We should just take a moment to note, don't accept the cookies. You don't have to. It doesn't affect the performance of the app in any way. Just take the second to not accept the cookies. Public service announcement now complete. But I do think, back to my point, that folks are going to feel differently if it's the government who has that kind of insight and that line of sight. And I, I don't know that those are the same thing at all, which is, I think, what you're saying. So and I, but I would go back to, I think that's in part because of what the government can do to a citizen that a private enterprise, at least in Western democracies, cannot do. Uh, and that matters a lot. So even though the habit might be to just use the thing and not think about it much, I do feel like that hesitation you're talking about around, mm-hmm. you know, the, the sex toy or whatever might even extend to something like, I'm buying diesel or I'm buying gasoline or I'm not driving a hybrid or I'm whatever it is, right? Like whatever that might be, if there is seen as being a downside or negative consequence or whatever to that, I do think the fact that the government is the one that has that line of sight is going to be significantly different to folks. 
But we also have to look at the good side of this because it also means a significant reduction to fraud. Because when you have yeah. to move pros money and cons for sure. From, you know, from a an AML wallet to another AML wallet, otherwise the wallet cannot exist and the AML is already in place, then it's much more difficult for fraudsters to move money. I mean, now we're, we're, we're talking about a little bit the elephant in the room, but we all know who takes the most of the fines for money laundering, right? I mean, it's not, it, the crypto industry has its bad things and clearly there is also money laundering in there, but the crypto is a very new element, a very new mm-hmm. story, whilst money laundering has been going on for many, many, many years. And no one knew there was crypto. So, you know, with the world that advances and the regulation that comes into the, the crypto space, then, of course, you can see that space for frauds is, is, or at least should, reduce massively. Getting back to the Bank of England, because it's sort of like the, the genesis of this is a useful way to frame it. I remember when they launched their first paper exploring the idea of a CBDC, I think, okay, I think it was like 2016 or something. There was a discussion there about the impact on the banking sector. And, and it has continued to be this overarching concern, right? And just to contextualize it, I've always found the argument completely understandable, right? The idea that if you would, you produce a, a CBDC or even stable coins for that matter, that there is potentially there'll be a, a sort of a movement of funds out of the banks and the banks would collapse and that'd be a big problem. But the counterpoint to that is like, well, well, yes, <laughs> that's kind of what you, not that you want to destroy banks per se, but the whole point about like, you know, direct peer-to-peer payments is that you wouldn't have a bank in the middle of it. So you do want to kind of destroy, maybe not the right word, but undermine or at least change that structure where banks and this dependence on fractional reserve banking are sort of integrated into our banking system. And now, in the last few months, of course, we've had a reminder of the problems of fractional reserve banking and when it challenges our payment system, that this sort of this dependence on a risk-based IOU-driven system raises doubts about the capacity for people to run their payroll, essentially, Silicon Valley Bank being the case in point. We're still there, right? Because we live and depend upon the banks. There's just no, you can't snap your fingers and immediately jump into a world where they don't exist anymore and we now have pure digital payments. And so it's like, if we could at least acknowledge that it's a chicken and egg problem, but it's not, it's people like treat this model, we have to protect the banks. And maybe there's a different dialogue that we could be having about that. In fact, no, you need to protect narrow banking or, you know, just just reserve banking. And we just need to maybe shift our credit system into a more risk-based asset maturity matching kind of uh, system. I don't know the answer, but but, but I'm sure where I'm going with this is like, what do you... We can all talk about this wonderful, imaginary, beautiful pyramid structure where everything is digital, but we've got a foundation of this existing banking system underneath it. How do you see it interfacing? You touched yeah. a very good point, and it's also a difficult solution, but I think that from the bank side, the perspective is slowly changing for, for a few reasons. Of course, banking disintermediation is and has been a concern, and that's why uh, the banking industry has, of course, slowed down all of this debate because they were afraid. They were saying, well, where's my role in the future? And also, if I may say, I know it's it's unpopular to say something in favor of the banks, but the banks have a fundamental role in our life. 
there is no credit without banks. There's no lending without banks. So is there though? Like, I mean, isn't there a world like there's no credit without people taking risk and sort of like you know putting turning capital and re, you know taking capital and then re, re allocating it, right? But does it have to be through a banking model? And maybe it does, right? I don't, I don't know. You know. Well, that's why I think that you know there are solutions that are now looked at with limits in place. Right? The Bank of England is studying a CBC model with limits in place. Mm. which will limit the CBDC at the start, will help the bank and will not disintermediate them at all, but will start a coexisting that, you know, everyone will find its new way in the new world progressively. Mm. So it's a sort of work by adjust uh, system. Where do you see, like, obviously, this is also not something that can be done in isolation, right? Like you, you mentioned at the outset, the geopolitical challenges. Money is more globally fluid than ever, notwithstanding the cross-border payments problems that we've always had. And you know, if somebody does something radical on one side, it could have huge international implications. And uh, depending on how open the system is, where do you see the international conversation going then around the need to coordinate these to, to whatever degree is possible while still retaining some level of competition? You know, how's that conversation going? Well, I think that you know. Most people surprisingly realize this quite late, exactly what you said, but I don't think it's a coincidence that the executive order came out of the, after the first week of the war in Ukraine. Like That's when people started to see, okay, mm. let's imagine that someone can transfer money in a different, using a digital platform that doesn't include us. Mm. Well, good luck, because you can't impose any sanctions, right? Mm. <laughs> that was a wake-up call. And it was unpredictable that it happened in that such abrupt way where, you know, people were dying and being bombed in a nonsense war that's like only offensive for the human beings. But mm. that's what happened. So yeah. Yeah. something that no one would have ever imagined uh, then opened up and said, oh, my God, well, now we have to think because these things, even if we think they're unthinkable, they still happen. And they happen at a doorstep in Ukraine. So that was, I think, a moment where many people realized, okay, well, we have to be serious about this. We have to think about it because it's real. And then all the all the reasoning that comes out of it, right? So I think that this was the moment where this thing came up. And second, you have to create anyway a system that's interoperable. At the highest level, the BIS is doing lots of studies. I don't know if you're familiar with their many projects that they name with lots of various um, different names, and they are studying all possible solutions. So there must be a, a high degree of interoperability because otherwise we're back to back to square one, right? Like we're doing this to solve cross-border issues, but if you're not interoperable, then you will never solve them. You know, as usual, we could go another hour, right, on these topics. I yeah. think the World Economic Forum, Davos, <laughs> yeah, coined this term polycrisis. And I, I'm thinking a lot throughout our conversation about how we really are at a moment of a polycrisis in our society. We also didn't touch on demographic changes, right? We didn't touch on uh, climate uh, migration. We didn't touch on all these things that are really affecting not only the geopolitics, but the need to have money that can flow across borders seamlessly. And that being kind of a seminal use case in, in ways that are beyond remittances, beyond real-time settlement, but other kinds of needs, some of which are humanitarian related, you know, to your point about Ukraine. We're also seeing, uh, you know, it feels like the world's on the brink of war at all times, right? There's just a very uh, civil wars or, or even uh, other kinds of pretty blatant nationalist aggression that we're seeing on the world landscape, which, you know, I would argue is not new, but it's sort of like at the forefront of a lot of this polycrisis and being fueled by other things. Uh, and so unsurprisingly, the way we think about money, uh, we are 
reimagining it, if I may, the way we think about money is is at the forefront, at the center of a lot of these conversations. And so a lot of times when we're talking about digital currencies, quote, or stable coins or CBDs or any of these things, what we're really talking about is how we want to function as a society. To what degree do we choose governments over private enterprises as the arbiters of our information? To what extent do we want to abandon that model altogether? How are we questioning the way that our banking system has been maintained over generations? All these kinds of questions may not be at the forefront of the conversation, but there's certainly things that people in positions of authority and policymakers and power are, are talking about or thinking about and are deriving their uh, analysis from some kind of philosophy about how the world ought to look. And that is, of course, equally true within the crypto industry. Yes, and thank you, Sheila, for having me here. Like, if I may conclude with this, I would say that, you know, we're not really reinventing the wheel. We are looking at staying at path with the evolution. And we want to ensure that the same risks are protected in the same way. So same risks, same regulatory outcome, which is the approach that the Treasury in the UK is, is taking. Because what we want to ensure in the end is risk management, financial stability and consumer protection. This is, it happened before when there was cash. It happens now in this, we don't know system. And it will happen in the future in the digital economy. Uh, so, Pardo, thank you so much for coming on today. As always, my co-host, Michael Casey, thank you for sharing your insights. Uh, again, you can follow us on the Coindesk Podcast Network or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Uh, please do share with your friends and come back again next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. You've been listening to Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. The show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. <laughs>